I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 10 in our series for 2018 and today's date is Friday, April the 20th. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. First, I talked to Johnny Wilkinson, the co-founder of Australia's first full retail equity crowdfunding offer, Equitize. It's a great way to expand the market of investors. And then... I have a chat with innovative economist Nicholas Grian, talking about his proposal to set up an evaluator general for government agencies. But first, let's talk to Johnny Wilkinson. Now, Johnny, let's talk about this equity crowdfunding platform, Equitize, which is now offering retail and sophisticated investors access to investment. And you're getting an influx of deals on the back of the first phase of the crowdsource equity funding legislation enacted last year. Yeah, definitely. So Equitize is an equity crowdfunding or an investment platform that my business partner, Chris Gilbert, and I conceived uh, a few years ago. Um, We quit our jobs and got going building 
a platform and getting the business going in uh, in a belief that the legislation was going to be changing relatively soon. Um, that was in 2014. Um, so that was obviously a bit bit foolish on our part. Um, but at that stage, it did look like there was going to be some changes. We, you know, got the business up and running. We went through the original iteration of H2 Ventures, the FinTech Accelerator Group. And after a couple of months in that, um, we realised that the legislation was going to change in time. So we got on a plane and went to New Zealand. Uh, I moved to New Zealand for 18 months and we got the business set up and uh, licensed and running over there. Um, and then over the past few years, we've been running deals out of New Zealand for retail crowdfunding. Uh, some wholesale and sophisticated investors in Australia have been participating. And then uh, all the while, we've been lobbying the government to get the crowdsource equity funding which we don't like to call but it's effectively the bill through to allow for equity crowdfunding so yeah so the first piece came into effect um at the end of last year and we got licensed on the 11th of january by asic uh we launched the first deal for zinja on the 11th of january which is just closed on saturday um we raised just under two and a half million dollars for them and yeah it's going tremendously well we've got a whole lot of more companies coming through so it's very exciting now, how does uh, crowdfunding, crowdsource equity funding work? So, yeah, so it, we uh, and uh, other people globally and people in the business call it equity crowdfunding. The crowdsource equity funding was some misnomer that came up with by the government and some other people. So it's, it's a bit, bit odd. But, yes, equity crowdfunding is the concept of people coming together um, and contributing what might be a relatively smaller sum of money to collectively help fund uh, a company, and it's traditionally a startup or a more venture capital style investment, um, and many of them are kind of in the, in the tech space. Um, so the idea is that with the modern sort of, uh, you know, modern ecosystem and way of uh, disseminating information and, and showing people offers, um, you know, you don't need a traditional prospectus, you don't need ASIC to sign off on every deal, um, a company can come through and say, look, we're looking to raise a million dollars. Um, here's our company. Here's the people involved. Here's what we'll do. Um, provide some information. Provide a platform like we do to um, disseminate that and for investors and the companies to interact so that investors can ask questions. It's all very open and transparent. And it's a very efficient way of kind of utilising technology and sort of modern communication to have a large audience of potential investors look at look at uh, offers and potentially invest in a lot of these high growth companies that have been out of reach uh, of the everyday investor until now due to the restrictions and just the way the market has operated. I would imagine that sort of business model would be perfect for startups. So, I mean, yes, in, in essence, and that's the, um, that's the view we've always had. Um, it ultimately comes down to what your definition of a startup and where, where you're sort of talking about in, in the funding chain and um, how much money companies looking to raise or how far um, evolved they are. But yes, this does lend to your more traditional high growth kind of tech startup business, and that's that's kind of where a lot of a lot of our deals to date have been, and then where uh, we see a lot of the market will be. Um, kind of the size and stage of funding I think will evolve over time at the moment it's sort of us looking to raise somewhere from a mill uh, to you know three or four or five million dollars for companies 
um, over time it might kind of evolve and it might move down the chain so it's a little bit more like seed funding or, or, or overtake some traditional kind of angel or friends and family sort of routes. But yeah, it's um, very much focused on your traditional kind of startup high growth funding that's, you know, venture capital style. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a great, great boon to the startup uh, ecosystem. And I would imagine too, it would uh, create great aftermarket support for the stocks because you had a have you have a much broader base of shareholders. So uh, just to be clear, with what we're doing with the retail equity crowdfunding, these companies don't list on an exchange. So that means that there's no immediate market that people are looking to trade their shares in, um, which uh, is obviously not a great outcome for investors necessarily with liquidity but it is very effective and, and can be um, important for companies at this particular stage. Uh, traditionally in Australia, um, the ASX has been the main source for a lot of companies to seek funding and they've gone and done that. Um, and quite often companies in early stages or high growth or going through, um, you know, like biotech's going through drug um, testing and those sorts of things, if there's a you know a long time between news or you know people aren't sure of what's happening, share prices can can be liquid um, and volatile, and and companies' valuations due to being listed can be moved up and down significantly, and it can cause a lot of um, distraction and also impact to the companies conceivably if they they need to raise more money and their their market valuation is is significantly depressed. So with equity crowdfunding there isn't an immediate secondary market to begin trading. We, over time, will look to kind of implement some more formalised structures to allow for some liquidity. But the very important thing to understand with this space is it's all very much um, your more mid to long term investment. Um, and it's the sort of thing that would only make up a small part of your portfolio in a diversified portfolio. Um, and so it does, you know, it, it does bring a greater deal of risk but the potential return is higher um, and the event that sort of the horizon and, and the time you should be holding an investment is is a fair bit longer so uh, give us some examples of uh, some of the stocks that you've backed so the the retail equity crowdfunding uh, market has only kicked off and we've only done run raise so far for Zinger. Um, so they're in Neobank. They're in the process of going through and getting all of their license to get set up and begin operating as a bank. So that was a great example of, of a uh, business that's doing something in a very interesting space, something disruptive. Um, it's a huge potential market. There's a lot of people that are around the business in their network or potential customers that feel very strongly about what they're doing and the space they're in. Um, so we helped them obviously put together an offer. They'd raised some money from some wholesale investors uh, alongside of the money that we raised from the crowd, which were your normal everyday investors that wanted some exposure to, to this type of investment. Um, so on the next offers we have coming through, uh, West Winds Gin is a West Australian Margaret River-based um, gin distillery who are the uh, one of the biggest uh, independent um premium gin producers in Australia. Um, so that's going to be an exciting offer. Uh, they've been operating for, um, you know, five, ten years. They've got a good support. They've got uh, three interesting sort of main lines of gin that they run. Uh, the business is growing and looking to go offshore and continue 
uh, exporting and growing the, the local market share. So that's one of the interesting ones we have coming through. Uh, another one that should be up and coming onto the platform uh, reasonably soon is Hashching. They're a disruptor in the kind of mortgage, mortgage broking space um, that help uh, provide a platform for um, people looking for mortgages to get better access to mortgage brokers and funding. So that's that's another interesting company coming through. But yeah, no, there's there's a lot of companies we're speaking to and in the wings. Uh, and as the market evolves, I think it'll be very interesting. There'll be some uh, some pretty cool companies coming through. Uh, what's interesting though too is you're going to need a very very good relationship with uh, with your established broking houses, wouldn't you? Um, no, not exactly. So this this area is is reasonably distinct and separate to that. Um, Australia has traditionally been quite a, a, a well sort of functioning uh, listed market for more early stage capital. Um, and a lot of brokers have, have played a significant part in that. But what equity crowdfunding does and some of the resurgence and some of the money that's been flowing through into the Australian venture capital industry uh, is really in line with what's happening globally and it is allowing for early stage capital markets and private capital markets to grow and to become a little bit more formalised. And a lot of companies might have the ability to stay private for longer and not have to go to market. Um, so our view and our long-term hope for all the companies we raise money for is that they can go on and uh, you know raise money on public markets and list on the ASX if they want. Uh, a trade sale or some some other form of exit opportunity, and that's what all of these companies are, are about. But um, it, it may not be via the traditional method of early stage um, ASX listings for smaller companies raising a few million dollars. It might be they might be able to last, um, you know, a few more years and, and attract some more funding and capital and get some venture capital funding behind them to go on and. Uh, expand offshore and maybe be acquired or something like that. And the beauty of the model is, of course, you're going to bring in a lot of mum and dad investors. Uh, so, yeah, look, uh, the term mum and dad we don't don't really like to use. Uh, it does have some negative connotations. Um, we call it everyday investors. So, um, you know, uh, mum and dad comes from some of your more traditional institutional stockbroking world um, who, who kind of look at retail investors in a different, different light. Um, we see this as opening it up to everyday people. You know, you might might earn fifty thousand dollars a year, and you you might um, you know uh, have a, have a small family and, and double income and, and that sort of thing. Or you could be worth a few million dollars, earning earning some uh, reasonable money, and see this as another way of investing in some things that uh, you may not have been able to access before. So. We just see it as, um, you know, democratising early stage capital. Uh, it's not necessarily focused to bring one group of investors in. Um, we obviously want a good broad mix of uh, both wholesale and sophisticated and, and more traditional retail investors. So, yes, it does allow what, what people have called mums and dads traditionally to invest in these sorts of companies. But in, in essence, it's just opening it up for everyone. Um, so it makes it more efficient and, and more uh, accessible. As you put it, you're democratising the process. That's fantastic. And thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Leon. Lovely to chat. And now let's speak to economist Nicholas Gruen. Nicholas Gruen, you've been saying we should have an evaluator general. Tell me, what does an evaluator general do and why can't this role be left to an auditor general? 
Um, good questions, Leon. So, so we're talking about principally about government, and uh, we're talking about the almost impo- the, the, the almost irresistible di- desire. Well, it is an irresistible desire that departments of state have to gild the lily, to report on themselves in a way that um, uh, puts everything they do in a good light. So I've been thinking about this for a long time. When I started working for, uh, when I started chairing an organisation called Taxi, the Australian Centre for Social Innovation, it was quite clear to me that we had built some ways of delivering services to the community in ways that were much more effective than the ways governments were delivering those services. Let me give you an example. We built a program called Family by Family, which was targeted at families that were uh, at risk of falling into crisis. And if you, if a family falls into crisis and you have to take their kids off them, uh, that, that you can rack up costs of about a million dollars to the state right there once you... Uh, think about all the costs of trying to look after the children. Um, our program didn't work with social workers turning up at houses with clipboards. It worked with uh, other families like the families in trouble who would mentor them through a highly structured process. Now, that program uh, is running in Adelaide and it's running in Mount Druitt and it has been doing so for about five years, Mount Druitt in Sydney, and it either should be growing strongly or it should be uh, in a you know, profound state of transformation or being closed down. None of those things are happening. It sits there as a little demonstration project while a, an enormous system... Um, which delivers child protection in the normal way via social workers and case workers grinds on and on and on. And and, and this new program doesn't compete on a level playing field with an old program like all of them that all the money is spent on. No government, no people out in the community can look at a public document and say, well, this, you know, in what ways does this work better? In what ways doesn't it? And why aren't we either doing more of it or doing less of it? And that would be the case with both of those forms of delivery of services. Now, an Auditor General will tend to, I mean, an Auditor General, Auditors General sometimes aspire to providing the information that we need to make those kinds of decisions, but their history and their operations are very compliance based. And the fact is that you can't know that information if you haven't built it into the program from the start. So my idea of about an, about an evaluator general is that at least when this pro, if we had an evaluator general according to my model, and that would take many years to develop, no program would be delivered without a monitoring and evaluation system that was designed by officers of the Evaluator-General and run by officers of the Evaluator-General sitting inside the agency. That monitoring and evaluation system would uh, be designed to help the agency improve. It's It's not seen as a compliance thing. It's not a compliance thing at all. won't work very well if we don't build the monitoring and evaluation system for the agency to improve its performance day in, day out, but because it's been delivered 
ultimately independently it's very it's got a lot of expertise and that data the data from the monitoring and evaluation is also in principle subject to privacy and various things public so i would see the evaluator general helping agencies improve helping agencies manage and measure what they do and releasing that data publicly which would create the sort of public pressure that is necessary if we're really going to improve services because at the moment we're really more or less just pretending. Now the Auditor General's role would be uh, more about a compliance but the Evaluator General would actually be there to help the agency improve its performance. Correct. That correct? That's right, that's right. In fact, um, in fact um, the the um, th- th- that's exactly what it would do. But it. But again, I just stress that I, that that um, the evaluator general won't work if it's seen as a top-down exercise or as a compliance exercise. Uh, it, there will be some tension because, of course, an agency won't want certain things reported or will feel a bit embarrassed about certain things being reported. But if you build that in from the ground up. If, if The thing is that most people who are trying to deliver child protection services or education services or health services, actually there's a lot of intrinsic motivation. They're really pretty keen to do a good job. And a lot of the systems that we have don't help them do that good job. So, so it's, it, the idea is for it to be genuinely independent but at the same time highly collaborative and built to help agencies improve. But at the same time, if you do that properly, it can actually play the role that no one is playing, they're only pretending to play at the moment, which is to give us some public insight into what's working and what's not working. I would imagine it would transform the culture and conduct of public agencies. Well, that's the idea, and because it's such a big idea I suppose one needs to temper one's um, enthusiasm both in terms of what can happen but also you know this isn't this hasn't been done yet and you know there will be uh, teething problems along the way uh, I might be being too optimistic but I, I couldn't be, be I couldn't be less optimistic about the system we have at the moment it's really just just hundreds of thousands of people going through the motions uh, and relying on their kind of gut instinct and their intrinsic motivation to do a better job. Well, we can just, we know we can do a lot better than that and good businesses do do a lot better than that. Well, when you mention about business, we're talking here about government agencies. So the question is, what relevance could an evaluator general, what application could an evaluator general have for the private sector? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting question. That's certainly one of the tests that I provide myself for this idea if this idea is such a great idea then it should be a good idea in some kind of way we should see these principles working in some kind of way or or being valuable in some kind of way in the pri- in the private sector and i think that we do so you think about internal audit and external audit um that's a mechanism whereby an external uh, where where auditing goes on and now we're in an auditing and kind of compliance frame and a fairly top-down frame, but you, that then leads to an internal audit system which tries to run the company in such a way 
that it will it will be able to get through external audit that it won't there won't be any nasty surprises when external audit is done the 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 thing where i uh, the thing where i'd take this further with the idea of the evaluator general is that i think in fact there are a lot of business functions that are actually de- in large organizations which are actually delivered um in a way which is quite analogous to the way they're delivered in government, which is to say they're delivered by people generally trying to do a good job, but it's all on a wing and a prayer. Consider um, consider HR, human resources, or used to be called personnel. Um, how do we tell whether HR is doing a good job in BHP Billiton? Uh, in 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 a large in, in a large corporate. Now, of course, there will be consultants who can tell you who will sell you a service which claims to be able to work that out. I think uh, if I was running a large company like that, I would love the idea that the same kind of model. So when we're building HR, uh, we do so with some real expertise in evaluation. And I think, again, a lot of people think of evalu- monitoring and evaluation as kind of about numbers and in businesses, you know, people set KPIs without a lot of reflection. So I think an evaluator general, and I would, uh, I've given this, I've, I've talked to CFOs about that, this uh, chief financial officers. I think, uh, as I said to the CFOs, I said, you're really CEOs, you're really chief evaluation officers. Your job originates out of finance, just as if we write the history of the evaluator general in 100 years and I turn out to be successful in this campaign, we will say that in some sense evaluation came out of audit. Uh, likewise, a financial officer is in ch- a chief financial officer is in charge of the most fundamental sets of metrics that a business has, or that's traditionally been the case. But generally, the the chief financial officer is in charge of understanding, say, the return on investment from HR or any other number of any other number of functions. It doesn't have to be located at the in in finance, but the idea that we would become very intentional and very expert about understanding how well things are going, particularly things that are not, don't have very direct, that, that are not easily understood, that, that where it's not easy for senior managers to know is this job being done well or is it being done badly. And the discipline of evaluation, which is now 40-odd years old, and as you become more familiar with it, you see how clever they can be in really trying to get inside systems and understand whether they're working according to the theories that we have, according to the theories we have for how they should work, is really quite sophisticated. And I think that's not widely known in the private sector. And there are real gains to be had from uh, private sector managers trying this out. Well, Nicholas Gruen, based on your model, we could have, with an evaluator general, we could have more effective government agencies and more effective businesses. It's uh, hard to see what's wrong. What could possibly go wrong, Leon? Absolutely. Well, Nicholas Nicholas Gruen, it's been delightful talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon.
So what's happening in the news? Well, the International Monetary Fund has upgraded Australia's economic growth forecast to at least 3% for the next two years. But it's warned the strengthening world economy faces headwinds from the Trump administration's trade disputes. The IMF's World Economic Outlook report said the global economic upswing that began around mid-2016 has become broader and stronger, with projections largely revised upward compared to those from six months ago. However, the IMF also warned that the prospect of trade restrictions might undermine confidence and growth. The IMF upgraded its projection for global growth to 3.9% for both 2018 and 19 in its latest April World Economic Outlook. That's up 0.2 percentage points for forecasts it made in its October 2017 update. Now, China has adopted a carrot-and-stick approach to the U.S., as the risk of a trade war between the two powerhouse economies continued to simmer. At the same time, the Beijing promised foreign car makers, such as Ford Motor Company, greater freedom to compete in the world's biggest market. It also slapped anti-dumping duties on imports of US sorghum. The contrasting moves send a message to Washington. China is willing to open some areas of its economy, but will also respond to signs of rising US protectionism. The question for President Donald Trump, as he mulls whether to follow through on threatened tariffs on as much as $150 billion in Chinese imports, is whether to focus on the concessions or the curbs. Now, his attack on Chinese currency policy this week and the banning of sales of crucial American technology to telecommunications gear maker ZTE Core signal a hawkish stance. Now to Australia. An ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index rose 0.8% to 116 last week, ending a string of weekly declines. Though the headline increase was modest, the detail was more encouraging, with four in five sub-indices posting gains. Views towards current financial conditions rose a solid 4.6% last week, after three successive falls. Views towards future conditions bounced 3.5%, entirely reversing the previous week's fall. Sentiment toward both current and future economic conditions continued to recover, rising 0.5% and 0.9% respectively last week, following similar gains in the previous week. The current condition sub-index has risen to 103.9, after falling to its long-term average of 101.9 in the last week of March. Now, AMP copped the full force of the Hain Royal Commission's probe into the provision of financial advice, with the company exposed for a policy of charging customers for services it never intended to provide, and then making a series of false statements to regulators about the practice. The Royal Commission into Misconduct in the Banking, Superannuation and Financial Services industry went through evidence provided by AMP, including breach reports to ASIC, external auditor reports, broad-level meeting minutes, and employee email correspondence and a established that AMP had lied and deceived ASIC about the nature of its fee-for-no-service breaches, which were deliberate rather than the result of administrative errors. Now, the financial services giant was skewered for its submissions to the Banking Royal Commission, where it admitted to possible breaches of the law in contrast with an AMP's executive's apology for what appeared to be actual breaches in a supplementary witness statement. Now, Hundreds of Australian businesses have been caught up in Russian cyber attacks, 
infecting millions of devices across the West. Defence Minister Maurice Payne has revealed that 400 Australian businesses might have been targeted by suspected Russian state-sponsored cyber attack. The Australian Cyber Security Centre said Russian state-sponsored agents had targeted Cisco devices using the smart install feature worldwide, including Australia. Minister for Law Enforcement and Cyber Security Angus Taylor said there'd been no indication that Australian information had been compromised. The Australian Cyber Security Centre had engaged the relevant Australian organisations, including through their internet service providers, to provide mitigation advice. Now, almost 80% of more than 160 Australian businesses are optimistic about their operations in China for the next year, according to the 2018 Westpac Australia-China Business Survey. About half forecast they'd increase their investment in China in 2018. That compares with 45% the year before, even as the report showed concern about the lack of transparency in the nation's regulatory environment. The survey results come days after Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull admitted diplomatic relations with his country's biggest trading partner had declined in the wake of comments he'd made in December linking the need for new laws to halt foreign interference in the political process with media reports about China meddling. The report also showed that 79% of Australian companies forecast profitability for their Chinese operations in 2018, compared with 66% in 2017. 58% regarded China as a leading or advanced technological nation, but only 16% have a detailed e-commerce strategy for China. 58% regard China's regulatory environment as not transparent, and 36% say that's hindered their growth in China. And also, unpredictable Chinese government policy was regarded as a number one risk to success. That was identified by 24% of respondents. Now, the National Broadband Network is replacing its temporary discounted pricing new bundles from May. MBN says a change comes as the number of Australian homes and businesses connected to higher-speed MBN plans has more than doubled, with orders for MBN wholesale speeds of 50 megabits per second or higher rising from 16% December to 37%. It estimates that more than a million people have upgraded their speeds in the last four months. Last year, MBN temporarily slashed its top-speed packages for retail service providers, reducing the cost of its 50 megabits per second speed plan in December to the price of 25 megabits per second. And MBN has also announced plans for new wholesale pricing options from May, following months of industry consultation. At the same time, though, the federal government has ordered a review into complaints handling and redress by telcos after a spike in dissatisfaction from Australian customers. Half-yearly figures released by the Telecommunications Industry Ombudsman show that more than a quarter of the 84,914 complaints by residential and business customers were about services delivered over the MBN. In total, a staggering 28,827 official complaints about MBN-related connections were made in the six months prior to December 31st. That's twice the number from the same period the year before. And the majority of complaints were related to service quality, with customers unsatisfied by provider responses, while other issues were around connection delays. Now, Woodside, Australia's largest independent oil and gas producer, said revenue rose to $1.17 billion for the quarter to March 31st, compared with $902.4 million a year ago. Output increased to 22.2 million barrels of oil. That's up from 21.4 million barrels in the March quarter last year. And that was helped by a ramp-up in production at the Wheatstone LNG project in Western Australia. 
Now, the Bank of Queensland is selling its St Andrews insurance business to Freedom Insurance Group for $65 million. The deal includes an exclusive three-year distribution agreement with Freedom for the provision of life insurance to the bank's customers. And the announcement was made as the bank posted a 4% rise in first-half cash profit after, after tax earnings to $182 million. Statutory net profit after tax was up 8% to $174 million, and revenue was up 4% to $555 million. Now, Australia's annual wine exports to China have soared through the $1 billion mark for the first time. Industry body Wine Australia on Monday revealed that total wine export by all players to China had jumped by 51% to $1.04 billion in the 12 months to March 31st. Now, the A2 Milk Company is expanding into South Korea under a sales and distribution deal with local pharmaceutical giant Yuhan Corporation to sell fresh milk and infant formula as part of its Asian expansion. New Zealand-based A2 hopes to replicate the strong growth it has experienced in sales in Australia, New Zealand and China in South Korea, which is a high per capita dairy consumption and fast-growing online sales. And finally, Jamie Oliver's dream of buying back the farm in Australia is over. The Jamie Oliver Restaurant Group has collapsed, with the company being placed in the hands of voluntary administrators less than 12 months after the British celebrity chef visited Australia to relaunch the six local restaurants bearing his name. Oliver bought them from another failed company in March 2017. The Canberra outlet closed immediately on Monday, and the remaining five sites in the Sydney CBD, Parramatta, Brisbane, Perth and Adelaide will continue to operate, salvaged by a last-minute sale to Brisbane-based Hallmark Group, best known for the Irish bar Finn McCool's. The collapse comes just weeks after the depth of the Naked Chef's global financial woes emerged. Oliver's businesses have been struggling to restructure their way out of debts of £71.5 million. That's $126 million Aussie dollars. One of his flagship restaurants closed after falling into administration, and the Jamie's Italian division closed outlets in a bid to stem heavy losses. And that's it for this week from Talking Business. And next week, we have a terrific interview with Olivier Pestel from a Cornerstone On Demand, a group that has done a study into the kind of super skills that companies and employees are going to need. In the meantime, you can catch with, up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Take care and looking forward to talking to you next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.